0: TED Audio Collective. Today, I want to start with some numbers that just astound me. They're from a talk by Kedra Newsom Reeves that she gave virtually in 2020.
1: As last recorded by the U.S. federal government, the median wealth for a white family in the United States was 171 thousand dollars, and the median wealth for a black family was just $17,000, a 10x difference over 150 years after the end of slavery.
0: Did you hear that? Wealth of 17,000 for a black family and 171,000 for a white family. And to be clear, that's the value of everything they own, car, house, savings account, minus what they owe. Now to be honest, when I hear those numbers, they make me feel kind of helpless. That 10x gap is so wide, and it's been piling up for so long. We can wait for policies all day, and they might never come. So in the meantime, it's on us to decide where our money goes. So how can we chip away at that 10x gap? Welcome to TED Business. I'm Madupa Akinola. And today, we're going to hear a talk from Kedra Newsom reeves She's a partner at the Boston Consulting Group and advises big financial institutions. And in this talk, she's going to tell us a story about a family, her family, and how financial policy has made it hard for them to build wealth over generations. Then she'll offer some practical advice about what financial institutions can do to change that. So she'll be covering some of the big stuff. Then I'll talk to a dear friend who's also an entrepreneur and business school grad who can help the rest of us figure out what we can do. So over to Kedra after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? Buy all the stocks in a theme as is or customize to better fit your investing goals, all in a few clicks. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing.
1: Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily. Podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks daily, wherever you get your podcasts. So, who am I? My name is Kedra Newsom Reeves. I'm a consultant, again, for banking institutions, hedge funds, asset managers. But before any of that, I'm a Black American who's the descendant of slaves. And when we talk about the wealth gap, it's really important to understand the history. So I thought I'd tell a little story about a family, my family, and how policy intersects with wealth. So I'll start with my great-great-grandfather. He was a man named Silas Newsom. And Silas was born a slave outside Nashville, Tennessee, uh, on Newsom Station, where he and his family worked on a quarry. He didn't own anything. He didn't own his home. He didn't own property. He didn't really even own his own body, his own labor, his children, any of those things, all of those things were here to create wealth for someone else. So we believe that he was a servant during the Civil War for a Confederate general uh, who was actually fighting to keep him enslaved. So he really had no wealth. He had no control over his life. Well, at the end of slavery, there was a policy opportunity there is a question. What do we do for the hundreds of years of slavery now that we are ending slavery and the country is coming together? And there was a choice. We could make a settlement with the slaves or we can make a settlement with the slave owners. Well, the slaves had no power to advocate for themselves in that moment and the country had to be united. So the federal government decided to give that settlement to slave owners, essentially giving them money for the property that they had lost at the end of the war, and not their physical property, not their homes, but people, the slaves that had provided free labor for years and decades. So Silas, at the end of the Civil War, had no wealth. He was free, but had no wealth. He became a sharecropper. My great-grandfather Silas was born a number of years after the end of slavery, and he was drafted to serve in World War I, along with 350,000 other Black American soldiers in segregated units. He served in the war. When he came back to the United States, at the end of the war, it was a very anti-Black sentiment. The economy was compressing. There were a lot of stressors. And Black people could not get land. They could not get loans for homes. They really could not acquire any credit to build wealth over time. So he also became a farmer. And he had a son also named Silas. There are a lot of Silases in my family. My grandfather, my grandfather Silas, was also a soldier and fought in World War II. After World War II, the U.S. federal government passed the GI Bill, which provided support for veterans. The bill provided for building of hospitals, student loans, and most importantly, for wealth building, low-interest home mortgages for veterans. In the years following the war, the GI Bill accounted for $4 billion of funding to 9 million veterans but black veterans largely did not benefit. So Silas, my grandfather, came back to Nashville, Tennessee, and he married my grandmother, whose name is Cinderella. Yes, my grandmother's name was Cinderella. And they had eight children, but they never bought a home. And the highlight of their housing journey was moving into a new public housing project with their children and paying rent for that housing project, which in terms of the quality of housing was fantastic for them and a step up, but did not allow them to build wealth. My father, another soldier, a 20-year veteran of the United States Marines, bought his first home in his early 50s. But it took four generations for our family to move into home ownership and begin to build ownership and equity in a home. That's one family story, and I skipped a lot of things that happened between the end of slavery and today. Redlining, housing discrimination before the Fair Housing Act in the 1970s, the really important role that Black-owned banks played in building Black communities. The savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, which crushed a lot of Black banks, and the subprime crisis in 2008, which stripped a lot of Black and brown homeowners of their homes. There's a lot of history there, but... That story tells you a bit about how we get to this 10x gap where we are today. Now, certainly, as we think about the size of that gap, it is critical for the federal government to take a number of actions. That said, financial institutions play a really important role in providing access to credit, access to capital, to build communities and allow Black communities to thrive. We have to be clear Managing $17,000 better does not get us there. Better education does not get us there. Access to credit and capital are critical. So I want to talk about four solutions today that financial institutions can contribute to start to close the wealth gap. Number one is getting more people on the ladder. Getting more people banked. We know today that about half of Black Americans are un- or underbanked. Unbanked means that you don't have a banking account. Underbanked means that you have a bank account, but you use alternative services for check cashing or payday lending or paying bills. And that's not just expensive from a transaction perspective in terms of the fees that you pay, it's also expensive in terms of the time that you commit to paying a bill. Think about how you pay your utility bill today. Probably comes out of your checking account, you don't even think about it, you set it up in advance and it's automatic. Well, if you're unbanked, you are probably going to get a money order somewhere, physically, a piece of paper. You then travel to City Hall or your DMV to pay that bill. About 40% of people who are unbanked say they are unbanked because they think they don't have the minimum amount to really maintain a checking account. Well, that's just not true. In the last several years, credit unions, community banks, and major banking institutions have created low cost, no minimum checking and savings account products specifically made for this population. So we have an issue with awareness. Banks, community partners, and others have to work together to increase the awareness of these products in communities that need them so we can start to reduce the number of people that are un- and underbanked and get them on the ladder that we talked about earlier. The challenge is about 28% of Black and Latinx families are credit invisible, which means that you have a thin credit file or no credit file. And the way that credit works and credit worthiness assessments work is to say, if you can prove that you have paid credit back consistently previously, then I can lend you more credit. It's kind of a chicken or an egg situation. The interesting thing is, is that banks and financial technology companies have really innovated in recent years to use alternative data, cable bills utility bills, rent payments, et cetera, to show that you're able to consistently make payments. The additional challenge on this one, unlike the last one, which was more about awareness, is that you need to have regulatory support to do these things. You need to prove to regulators that you're able to fairly use alternative data to lend credit to marginalized groups. What we need to see is from the federal government, and the banking industry to come together to create innovation sandboxes to start to use alternative data to expand to marginalized groups. Well, what about communities? Without a community wealth, individual wealth in a way is on an island. And if you go into most major cities in the United States to most communities of color, what you'll find is underinvested communities. For every economic crisis, these communities have suffered severely. For every economic boom, they have not benefited. And so what we're seeing in a number of cities across the country, and I'll use Chicago as an example, is the partnerships occurring between banking institutions, philanthropists, the city, and community leaders to invest hundreds of millions of dollars to build community resources in communities that have historically been disinvested. Lastly, we've got to talk about business and not just small businesses. Now, when you have individual stability in a banking institution, when you have access to credit, when you have community wealth, those are all fantastic things, but we need also job creation. Take all of the new tech companies, and I say new, quote unquote, because now they're not so new, but take Facebook, Google, Amazon. At some point, all of those companies were sole proprietorships with one employee or a few employees that were building a technology that was not yet proven. What those companies received early on was venture capital money. And when you look at venture capital today, only 1% of venture capital funds go to Black founders. So with Black entrepreneurs largely shut out of those networks, they're not able to grow. And the only way for that to change is from within the industry itself. In this generation, we must not only be talking about thriving businesses in Black communities, we must also be talking about seeing more Black-owned and founded businesses going public. those are just four solutions. There's many other things that can and should be done to close the wealth gap. This gap is not new. It was born and perpetuated by federal policy, social constructs, and business practice over time. And all of those things need to change to start to close the gap. Financial institutions play a really critical role at the individual level, at the community level, and at the business level. It's important to our families, it's important to our communities, and it's important to our economy. Instead of talking about how the gap continues to grow, let's begin to close the gap now. Thank you.
0: Canva presents unexplained appearances. So that's what Kedra had to share with us, some incredibly powerful information. And you know another number that stood out to me in this talk? 1%. And when you look at venture capital today, only 1% of venture capital funds go to Black founders. And that's why I wanted to talk to somebody who's part of that 1%. Hey, girl. The Um. entrepreneur, business school (laughs) grad, and dear friend I mentioned earlier, Shawnee Dowell. Could you introduce yourself to us? Who are you, Shawnee? What do you do? Sure.
2: Hi, I'm Shawnee Dow. I am the founder of POSIP, which is a platform that helps schools hear from their families and their staff.
0: And I'm also a proud friend of Dr. Akinola. Can I brag about you for a second? So, Shawnee, you're very, very pedigreed, as one might call it. (laughs) What Shawnee's not going to tell you is that she went to Stanford Business School, worked at some of the most prestigious consulting firms, or that she's the first Black woman in Tennessee to earn a million dollars in VC funding. But what she is going to tell you is why she believes entrepreneurship and growing that number from 1% is one of the most powerful ways to shrink the wealth gap. Because she says that just like all of this, entrepreneurship is really about
2: about ownership. And connecting it back to slavery, thinking about we started out not even owning our own person. So Mm -hmm. like you go from a place of not owning your own person to then trying to get to a place where you're able to own land and property and then own a company. And so that whole idea of ownership, um, which then takes me to entrepreneurship, which is about owning an idea that can then lead to a kind of a transformational vision that can permeate uh, not only for your family, but for a community,
0: a country, a world. So- Wow. Yeah. <laughs> see, see, this is what I'm talking about. This is why I needed to talk to you. Shani understands that when Black people own businesses, it gives them the power to bring unique ideas into this world, which has a compounding effect that can help reduce the wealth gap. So I wanted to know how she managed to start her company within some of the confines of the VC world.
2: I remember early on. And in my process, I heard a couple, I, I was listening to VCs because I was thinking like, I want to raise this money. So they were saying things like, you need to move to Silicon Valley. You should, um, you need to work full-time on your on your company. Um, you need to have a tech co-founder. And that's how people know you're serious. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to leave my full-time job, which I've been using to help pay for, you know, starting the company. And, you know, within six months, the fundraising journey hadn't been easy. And I was at $3,000 in the company bank account. Um, and I think it was just like, that moment where I realized, like, oh, I don't have enough money to keep this thing going. <laughs> um, but as they say, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. So that, that kind of just changed my fundraising path. Within a couple of weeks, we had $100,000 invested. Uh, it was an investor from Nashville. And so that kind of was just the,
0: the legs we needed for me to then go out and keep raising. Um, it was, was when she shifted moment. her attention to Nashville, where she lives, that her trajectory turned. And that revealed something fundamental to her about the norms of VC investing. The expectations of having a tech co-founder, being based in Silicon Valley, making your startup your full-time job, those things did not work
2: for her. Basically, when you're saying those three things, you're saying, I don't actually really want to invest in Black founders. Because those are all things that Black people are less likely to be able to quit their day job to start a company because they're going to need to either support themselves or support their family or at least test the idea to a certain stage. They can't write an idea on a napkin and then go and raise $20 million for it. You know, I talked about not having a tech co-founder. I mean, I'm a 40-year-old black woman. I'm not hanging around with tech guys who want to go and start a company with no salary. Like, so me, (laughs) I'm not coming out of my college dorm room. I don't know 22-year-olds who are tech geniuses who are trying to like found a company for free. Right, So, with a 40-year-old woman. With a 40-year-old woman, yeah. Like, no. (laughs) So I I think, yes, freeing myself from other ideas of how things should be done were really, um, yeah, really, really powerful.
0: But, I mean, that's what we're taught all our lives. Like, there's a model, and you follow that model. So it's like creating your own way and your own path and your own model. Yeah. And what I love about that is that now you have created a model— for future entrepreneurs to try or to break that mold and say, no, this is what the next level looks like and to continue iterating on what it takes to be successful, which is not always following what the past was. I mean, one of my favorite things that I often hear is that, you know, well, why are offices, office buildings so cold? Because they're based on the temperatures of men because Mm -hmm. men were the ones that were in these buildings. And so we can't rely on a template that was not created and built for us. Mm-hmm. We can't rely on systems that were not created and built for the nuances that a person of color, a woman, a, a, whatever, mm-hmm. brings to the table. So you have to recreate it. And sounds like that's what you did.
2: And I do think, I think to your point about the wealth gap, I think we've got to recreate new systems and yeah. be owners of yes. the recreation of the new systems.
0: And entrepreneurship allows people to do that to create new systems that they own. So that's one particularly powerful way we can start to close the wealth gap. But so few of us have the courage or the opportunity to be entrepreneurs. So what can the rest of us do? That's what I wanted to understand. And as I asked Shani, she kept bringing up one core idea in a variety of forms. It's easy to underestimate because it's so simple.
2: So yeah, so when I was a manager um, at an organization, one of the things that was really popular when we started to do was really be intentional about how and with whom we spend our money. So an example is you buy your lunches, right? Like sometimes you have team lunches. Are you making sure that you are using a diversity of vendors? Panera is great, but is there a local Black-owned restaurant that you can use for that? For almost every major purchase. As a company now, one of the things we're looking at is what percentage of our money are we spending with um, black owned or women-owned companies. So just think about what do you have stewardship over as a person? You've got your professional budget, but then you also have your personal budget. Um, a friend of mine reached out because she was very convicted by you know this issue, the wealth gap. A white woman, she was like, I, I believe reparations should exist. I can't make the country do reparations, but I can do my own part. And so she's taking 10% of her income and she ceded um, that money to invest in Black founders, Black entrepreneurs. And so she's going to raise money um, with some other people to just create a fund that is going to be invested in Black entrepreneurs in Nashville, like kind of the equivalent of a tithe. And so I think that's really powerful and speaks to just kind of what one person can do.
0: So it's this idea of a percentage that every month Or every year, you can take a percent of the money you spend and direct it toward Black communities. And by holding yourself or your business accountable to this percentage, it's as if you're creating your own new system. And if enough of us did this, we'd have a greater chance at shifting the system we're in. So where should this money go? As Shani mentioned, you could invest directly in Black entrepreneurs, or you can spend it at Black-owned businesses. You could also invest in Black-owned VC funds like Harlem Capital or Backstage Capital. You could donate to charities that serve Black communities or even support Black friends who want to get a business off the ground. You might even follow the lead of Netflix, who recently committed to putting a percentage of their cash in Black-owned banks, since these banks often invest that money into Black communities. So these are just a few options, and there are many more. But it's also important not to forget the basics.
2: As a manager, again, if you have any sort of hiring that you're doing, it's just to make sure that you are thinking about salaries equitably. You know, there, there are lots of different ways where wage inequity exists. And one interesting fact that I learned, which just pushed me, is that women founders also underpay themselves. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm doing it. Yeah, I know, I was like, I realized, I was like, oh, yep, that's me. <laughs>
0: I mean, so I, I I am curious if there's one thing you want people to walk away from Kedra's talk knowing or believing, mm. what is that one thing?
2: Well, there's one of my favorite lines um, is from Boys in the Hood, and it's at the end where, you know, they're sitting down and they're trying to reflect and Ice Cube says, you know, either they don't know, they don't show, or they just don't care about what's going on in the hood. And so I think about that a lot because I think the first step is to know, like for people to really not just hear the statistics and let them go by, but to really like listen to them, dig deeper, to just really know them. And then to show that you care about them. So, you know, I shared the example of a friend who kind of came up with her way of showing, but there are many ways to show that you care Um, about what's going on. And so I think those are two things is to really like steep yourself in the knowledge and to be constantly aware and mindful of it. And then to show it through, you know, different action that you can take. And folks are smart. They can come up, they figure out how to do a lot of stuff.
0: They can figure out how to show they care. Um, Super powerful. So thank you for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you, Shani, for using your journey to remind us to create our own playbook as entrepreneurs, that all of us can put our money in Black hands and businesses in creative ways and to care about what's going on in the hood. That is our own little way of reducing the wealth gap. One more thing before I go. This show is young, just a few months old which means we're trying out all kinds of formats and ideas and voices, you name it. And we want to hear from you. What's it like on the other end? So send us an email at business at TED.com. Let us know who you are, say hello, why you listen, and anything else that's on your mind. We look forward to hearing from you. This show is produced by Kim Naderfane Peterza. Dan D'Zula is our mixer, and special thanks to Corey Hajim, Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, Ban, Ban Chang, and Colin Helms. I'm Madupa Akinola. Talk to you next week.